Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Rick, thanks so much for thanks so much for being here. Good to be here, Jeremy. Um, I know, we're just talking off. We we're just talking, you know, before we press record about how you know how challenging entrepreneurship can be, and how it, you know everyone it takes ten years to build an overnight success. Right. Why don't we start there? Why don't you tell me about some of the some of the early days at Plated um, and some of the challenges that you guys faced? Yeah, well, you and I were just chatting about how you, you've you've been running your own business for twelve years now, and you just woke up a few days ago at four a.m. with with business on the mind, and I think that's. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I didn't fully appreciate going into this, and I think a, a lot of would-be entrepreneurs don't appreciate. Also, is like if it's your thing, it's 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 in you. You know, it, it is not the kind of thing you put to you put you put down at five p.m. and you come home and you watch Game of Thrones and you wake up and you commute and it starts again at nine. It's this thing that's just like if it's going to work, it has to be something that becomes part of who you are. And for, the, for better and worse, right? And and like from the beginning for you, if, if 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 what I know is correct, you were I mean you were you and your partner were like hands on assembling the stuff in your apartment, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so this you know, is the, not, not not the not the glamorous like you know big warehouse. I mean, you guys were just no, you, we, guys, you guys started bootstrapping. Right? We 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 bootstrapped the business. So I had uh, I came out of the Marine Corps. I went to Wall Street. Uh, hated it. I was working sales at Goldman Sachs and was miserable. I got to jump in and say I did one one treacherous year myself. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, I just feel a kinship with you on that yeah, one. Yeah, so you can relate to that, right? So I came out of the Marine Corps where it was all about challenge and mission, and then I got onto Wall Street, and there was certainly no mission. And uh, the, the challenge was also really, really lacking as well. And that's part of what drove me to, to want to start my own thing. I was looking for... Something where I could get really excited, something you know, big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG that I could sink my teeth into, uh, but something that also had a mission behind it. It had to be about more than just making money. So when Josh, my uh, my co-founder, and I teamed up, we knew each other from business school. We met at Harvard Business School, but we went our separate ways after school, and we teamed up in early 2012 to work on a big challenge, to work on something that had a mission behind it, and uh, we wanted to use data and, and technology to to build something. And what was most exciting to us after doing research for, for a few weeks and months was food for, for two main reasons. One, for the, for the consumer, for us as individuals, and for millions of other consumers, 
there's this problem of getting food on the table. It was it was unnecessarily hard. Uh, you know, we were eating uh, takeout greasy food multiple times per week. Just not the way food should should be in 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 an era when you could get um, you know fantastic products at the click of a button. So we knew there had to be a better way to for, for to get food for the consumer. And then on the other side, we looked at just how broken the food supply chain was, and we saw over three hundred billion dollars in food waste every year, which is just an astronomical staggering. number. Yeah, staggering. Just so much inefficiency. And again, we thought, let's use data and technology to fix that. There's got to be an opportunity there somewhere. Uh, and we decided to start with dinner. We decided, decided to start with cooking, uh, because it's one of the most visceral things that, that people can possibly do. You know, hum- humanity has been cooking for, for millennia, and it's something we've become disconnected from. But one of our core insights is that People still want to cook. They want to get in the kitchen. They want to prepare meals themselves. They want the transparency around where the food is coming from and what it actually is. It's just unnecessarily hard and complex. So we could solve a a consumer problem, and we could hopefully use data and technology to fix a a big supply chain issue as well. And that was the insight. And uh, we threw up a a website in a a couple hours. We bought a $9.99 domain on GoDaddy. So plated it. Plated was available with that? Plated was not. So, you know, th- okay. this is this part, you know, part of the founding story. We, we spent, you know, about 30 minutes looking for something. We knew that if, if this ended up working, we'd, we'd, we'd have to rebrand. We'd have to do things in a bigger and better way. But was, it, was it initially called Nick's Delicious Dinners? Uh, something even worse, <laughs> oh, actually. It was Dine In Fresh. Uh, dine In. Terrible. Well, the thing is, like, when you tried to say that to anyone, they were like, Dining? Dining? Okay. Dining? You, know, you had no idea what the name of the business was. Okay. okay. Um, but it was DineInFresh.com. Okay. And that's that's what we incorporated as as well. So that's still our, oh, our okay. C-Corp name. We're doing business as plated today. So when did when did you guys become plated? So we and how we, did you get that domain name? I mean, I'm not asking you to disclose price, I guess, but yeah, yeah. I imagine it cost you. No, I mean that that's like that's another thing I had, I knew nothing about, right? So we were starting a food e-commerce online, you know, consumer-facing business, and neither of us had any any experience in food, in e-commerce, in consumer online businesses. So we had to learn everything. So to, to your point, we were you know, in my kitchen. Josh was building the site. I was going to the local grocery store buying salmon and basil and hacking it up on the kitchen counter. And that was the first you know, five months of, of the business. We, we incorporated June 7th of 2012, and we didn't become plated until October 29th of 2012, which coincidentally is the same day that uh, Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Oh, wow. So we launched officially as, as plated.com the day Hurricane Sandy hit. Oh, so there, there's, 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 a, there's more story there. Uh, um, but in the intervening time, you know, we 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 went through this these trials and tribulations of raising money. We needed to raise money to, to get the business off the ground. Up up to that point, it had been all on credit cards. We liquidated four hundred one ks. I was living in unemployment. Josh was getting was on a payment plan from the IRS because we just had, we just had no money. You know, we're like two pretty much broke dudes with a bunch of business school loans trying to get this thing off the ground. So let me back up here. Okay, yeah, so, so yeah. So how long were you? Self-funding and and uh, I mean, how close did it come through the to the to, the, to you know how what was the timing between sort of running down your savings and getting that round? Uh, it got really hairy. Um, so we got together in March 2012. We didn't incorporate plated until June. 
So in that time, we were, you know, we had savings, we had money to spend. We actually went through a completely different idea for three or four months before getting to to, to what would become plated. But that's that's a story that's neither here nor there. But during that time is when we, we burnt through most of our savings. So by the time we, we got to, to, to plated, which is the idea we were really excited about, we had to essentially go out and raise money immediately. So we knocked on hundreds of doors trying to raise money and just got shut down time and, and time again. But you have a runway. I mean, you've got clients and you're shipping stuff at this point. Not really. I mean, at this point, it's, it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we're still figuring out how to do, how to even do what we wanted to do, right? So, like, sending salmon and basil in the mail hadn't been done before right. in, in the United States. So we were trying to desperately figure out what packaging to use, what shipping service to use, where to do it, how to do it safely. It was July at this point, so it was hot as hell in, in Manhattan. So, like, I'd pack this thing up in a FedEx box. I'd hustle it down to the local FedEx store, and, like, the salmon would just be oozing wow. through the cardboard box, you know? So <laughs> just a lot of trials and tribulations, figuring out if it was even possible to do what we wanted to do. Again, we knew there was a consumer insight here. Uh, we knew it was a big one. And uh, we decided to, to, to stick through it, but essentially had to had to raise money immediately. So you so you go and start talking to venture capitalists, and, and people just think you're crazy at the time. Well, we didn't even have you know venture capitalists is like this is this is what you know what they call friends and family rent, right? Right. So this was we we need a couple hundred thousand dollars. We built some you know rudimentary financial models, um, and those models said we'd need two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to to get through one year of the business. And we had zero dollars, so we had to go raise some some money just to get the business up up and off the ground. And we didn't know any venture capitalists, so our first stop was you know, friends and friends of friends, you know, quote unquote angel investors, people who who invest in startups uh, as, as because they're you know they they made their money doing other things, whether it be in medical practice or selling other businesses. And that's where we went to raise our our first money. Not successfully, right? Right. So we we knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors. So Josh was building the site, I was out, you know, pounding the pavement trying to raise money. Um, and you know, I think a, a big lesson here is take any conversation you possibly can in in those early stages. You know, hundreds of conversations later, I was demoralized, discouraged. We'd gotten a whole bunch of no's, and then I ended up very randomly having coffee with a with a buddy from college. And we were talking about what I was working on, and he said, "Oh, no way! You know, my my former boss was just talking about you know a very similar idea. You should talk to him." I was like, "Okay, you know, whatever." Mm -hmm. I ended up talking to his boss, and his boss had just sold a business to uh, to Microsoft for over a hundred million dollars. Hmm. So I got on the phone with him. He was super excited about us. He was he's a Israeli former special forces in the IDF. He liked my Marine Corps background. We connected and he he flew Josh and me out to to the to Silicon Valley. He's based in Los Altos. Flew us out there for a weekend. We we went to his kid's birthday party, you know, we're like <laughs> jumping on the bouncy castle, we're like give us money. And uh you know, eventually those guys, he he and his you know quote unquote Israeli mafia gave us our first four hundred thousand dollars, and that so that was enough to get you through a little more than it was uh, hypothetically enough to get you through a, a little more than a year. Did it, did it last the, the year? Was it enough to get you? To, so an to, another two thousand thirteen at this point. Yeah. So another good learning for us was you know all 
raise more money than you think you need, right? Because you know Excel math is is all just kind of you know wonky, funny math when you're that early in a business. So we raised what we thought would be more money than we would need, and we were already running out of money by by December. So you know, four or five months into it, we're like, "Holy right. crap! This this is this is going to take us you know seven or eight months, not twelve months." Right. And, and <clears throat> pardon me, that uh, that four hundred thousand dollars is that just going into you know, is that just working capital? I mean, did you get? I mean, I have to assume you got a space at that point, and probably had some customer development at that point. Um, what? Let me let you speak. <laughs> what, what did you do with four hundred grand? So still very early, right? We spent about. $20,000 on this biodegradable plant-based foam to use as insulation in boxes. We tried it for, for, for you know like 10 orders. At this point, we're shipping you know, like 10, 20 orders per week, right? right? This is not a real business. This is like a hobby project still. Right. So we put this you know plant-based biodegradable foam into boxes, sent it across the, the East River to, to Brooklyn, and it arrives, and it's just like mushy cornstarchy mess that's blending in with the, the lettuce and, and the meat. You know, it's pretty disgusting. So, you know, we... I, w- it, I wish everyone who... If, I wish this was a TV show where we could see the scorn on, on yeah. Nick's face. Yeah. It was pretty... You know, disgusting. So, it was pretty, yeah. pretty gross. Pretty horrible. <laughs> it was pretty gross. So we did... We spent some money there. Um, we, yeah, I was married. I am married. Was recently married at the time. Six months into in, into my marriage at the time, we we're you know chopping up salmon and and kale on my kitchen counter. My wife would get home after work and be like, "Dudes, what the hell are you doing?" <laughs> you know, the, Josh would be pounding out code, sweating. I'd be covered in, in in you know kale remnants, and she'd get home and be like, "This is this is you know, not gonna work." So one of your business takeaways is have a very patient wife. Yes, yeah. I mean. In all, in all seriousness, having a solid founding team, and you know, the founding team goes beyond just your your business partners, but making sure your your family life is stable is super important. Because if you don't have that support system, um, it's really hard to be focused. And without focus, it's it's nearly impossible to get a business up and off the ground. Right. So let me take it back. So the four hundred thousand dollars you got, you got your foam that you're testing. Yeah. What, what else are you doing with that? So Nimi kicked us out of the house. My wife kicked us out of the kitchen. So we had to go find a refrigerator where we could where we could pack food safely. I spent weeks scouring the 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 boroughs. Uh, I didn't go to Staten Island, but I went to every other borough looking looking for space that we could rent uh, on the cheap, and you couldn't really find much of anything. So um, you know, eventually, what we had to do was uh, go and build our own fridge. So Josh is an engineer from from Georgia Tech. He knew these hunters in college. He went to to, to to college with these Georgia Tech hunter guys who had built fridges in the woods with air conditioners and tarps and these aftermarket adapters you can get online. And he's like, "Oh, let's uh let's build our own fridge." <laughs> so that's what we went and did. We went and, went and spent um, another like 25-30k building our own fridge <clears throat> in in the old Guinness bottling factory in in Queens and um Built, built that thing from from scratch. Spent about three weeks doing that, living out there um, in, in, in the middle of you know, July at this point, building a fridge, and we turned it on, and it wouldn't get below 60 degrees. And what does it need to get to? Like 40. Oh, wow. To be safe, to be food safe. So it was a you know, complete and utter failure. It spent you know, weeks and weeks and th- tens of thousands of dollars building it. We just had to, to walk away. Um, 
fortunately, our, our landlord is a great guy named Alan Dern, who, who called himself the rabbi. Um, he's this, like, 55-year-old, Brooklyn-born, bootstrapped, like, raised himself on the streets and ran a, a, a trucking company and the short-term leasing company, and he he was there to help us. Hmm. So, you know, these, these people who early on take a flyer and believe in so you. he was there to help you as an investor to keep things moving? He didn't invest, but he found us a space <clears throat> in the Guinness Bottling Factory. He, he gave us trucks for free to help us move our stuff. When the first fridge failed, he found us more space in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where we moved. For, for our second, you know, quote-unquote facility. Um, and that second facility, we, we got a large cargo container. It was this refrigerated cargo container that it's called a sea box because they're normally used to transport uh, food across oceans. Mm. So we got this 40-foot-long, 10,000-pound cargo container and plugged that thing in to be our initial refrigerator. Hmm. So you're... You know, trial and error. You know, some 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 stuff that seems comical in hindsight that I'm sure was, mm-hmm. was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're so. How do you stay ahead of that? Like you've got, you've got that four hundred thousand dollars you're you're running out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, give a sense of where you are with customers at this point, and are you just on a perpetual cycle of, of fundraising at that point? Like, how do you balance your time? Yeah, uh, this, I, this is my my flaw as an interviewer. Is I ask six questions at once. <laughs> so answer what you like. <laughs> <laughs> so I think time time is a, is an interesting one, and it's a it's a good one for for folks that are just starting businesses for the first time because there there is just too much to do. There, you know, you could fill you know multiples of twenty four seven trying to get a business off the ground. So being really ruthless. With, with prioritizing and you know, setting up decision-making processes up, up front. Like, what matters most to this business? What is mission critical? What's critical path? If we don't have this, the business will, will, will fail or not. Because in the early days, if you're not being that regimented and you know, thinking about it in terms of binary terms, uh, you could very easily spend all of your time just chasing shiny things that are, that are, that are really either vanity metrics or, or don't move the business at all. So for, for me, Josh and I early on divided up responsibilities. Uh, Josh would handle tech and analytics, and he'd do the, the, the financial modeling, and he would work with our, our Slovakian front-end web developers to do the, 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 the user experience design, and I'd do the operations, I'd do the, the food sourcing, I'd uh, do most of the fundraising, I'd do the, the PR, and you know, the, 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 the very uh, you know, preliminary marketing. So we had to learn how to do marketing. We'd, we'd never you know, sold anything before. Right. So that, that was another, you know, just pretty steep learning curve where we tried a lot of stuff, you know, invested a lot of money that, that didn't that didn't have a return. All right, you're begging for me to, quote, to ask about that then. So, so tell me about the, the, the initial customer acquisition. How challenging was that? And, and what worked and what didn't? Yeah, so, I mean, at, at, at first it was friends of family. Hey, you know, we're starting this thing. Give us a try. And for the first few months, you know, it was ten boxes here, ten orders there. You know, really not getting much traction. Um, where is, where, sorry, I got to let you speak, but where, where are you getting the recipes from? And are you, are you, how are you sourcing that volume of, of recipes? At, at that point, to be honest, we we're just going online and, and pulling them down off of recipe sites and you know, 
reformatting them in Word and putting them into a box. There, right. there were no pretty photos. There was no culinary team. It was you know just us. Mm. Um, and sourcing was a debacle as well. You know, trying to figure out how to work with vendors. You know, f- people would show up six hours late, and we'd miss our shipments. And you know, I'd be screaming at FedEx in, in the warehouse, screaming at our salmon vendor. Just you know, a lot of stress in the early right. days doing everything. Right. Literally everything. It was just it was two of us for a long time. Right. Um, sorry, but I got you off track. I'm, yeah, on the, on, spend it on, on, on what works and what doesn't for customers. So on the marketing side, you know, a, a benefit that we realized pretty early on was you know, next to puppies and kittens, food is the most shared thing on, on the internet. So this was something that people inherently wanted to talk about. You cook a good meal, you want to share it on Instagram, you want to, you want to tell your friends about it. And we put in place a referral program mm. way early on. But that wasn't enough. We needed to get more people into the top of the marketing funnel. We, we, we couldn't just survive off of bottom of funnel word of mouth marketing. So we, we, threw, you know, we threw spaghetti at the wall, hoping that something would stick. Um, uh, and it didn't work very well, to be honest. It was months and months of trying different things, handing out flyers in Union Square, running Facebook ads, you know, not knowing how to do that, um, running Google ads, not knowing how to do that, you know, spending spending a thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there, and not really seeing a return on investment anywhere. Right. Um, I'm, doing, I'm doing that currently, actually. We're about to, <laughs> we're about to cancel our our online advertising. It's, just, it's 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 a it's a really nebulous thing. It's it's nebulous unless you have really good you know good AKA expensive people right. doing it for you. There there are a lot of uh, you know. Fraudster is probably a strong term, but there are a lot of hucksters who who sell themselves as as being experts who you know are just good at taking your money. Um, so we we built out over the years uh, a customer acquisition team that you know it's a team of four people and one person does Facebook, one person does Google, got another person that does everything else. So what, what did work? I mean, what, what were the, what were some of the big big wins for? It? I mean, you guys had amazing PR also. So that was that was the big thing. You know, the early days it was PR. It was mostly driven by by PR. And I, you know, good good lesson that we learned there was you know smoke and mirrors, fake it fake it till you make it. <laughs> and when when I talked to the first Wall Street Journal reporter that I talked to, he quoted me as saying we had thousands of paying customers. And at the time, we probably had my dad. My dad, <laughs> my dad, and maybe my mom as as paying customers. So you know, we we perhaps it was a bit disingenuous not to go back and and you know tell them we actually only had you know right. ten paying customers. Eight of them were my dad. Um, but that you know first Wall Street Journal piece that hit in December of 2013 catalyzed this this wave of new investor and and customer interest, and we were able to to parlay that into more fundraising. I mean, it's amazing we're talking about, like, 2013. It's only 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like, in a weird way, some of these businesses, like, I mean, Plated feels like it's been around for a long time. Like, I've, I've known the brand for a while. Um, I think we've just sort of become accustomed to these, you know, this. Th- some of these businesses are just become part of our, you know, our, our vocabulary and our lives. Um it's just amazing to look back at that time and realize you were only shipping, you know, a couple of dozen, yeah. you know, meals. 
But um, well, I think but, on on that point, yeah. there, there, there's there's a positive and a negative as 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 an entrepreneur trying to launch a consumer facing business today. The positive is that yeah, you can you can build a brand you know almost overnight if you do it in a, in a smart way. If you've got a good brand, if you've got a product people like and they're, they're they're willing to talk about it, and if it works well in the digital realm, right? Again, you know, food is inherently shareable. It's really good on social media. Right. So we were able to build the brand very quickly. The downside though is. Uh, there, there are, it, it, the, the consumer's attention span is very short. Right. Right. So if you're not doing good work, if you're not staying relevant, if you're not producing a product that really works for people, they're going to move on incredibly quickly. Right. Right. There's something for every sports fan on CBSLocalSports.com. Watch live radio shows and original video programming while reading national articles from some of the best writers in the country. Visit CBSLocalSports.com today. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So you, you you get these you get these you get this PR, and I guess you know you I have to imagine that you went from, you know, sort of not being able to keep up, uh, you know, in a in a in a negative way to not being able to keep up in a positive way, like just you know just boom, and now you've got all of this you know you, you do have those thousands of clients that that you're that you're talking about. I mean, tell us about the tipping point and and. Were you turning? Did you have to turn business away? Like that to me is the most painful thing ever. Turn, yeah, turn, I'd rather not have the business than turn it away. Were you, were you were you were you were you turning it away? Well, I mean those those are those are what we call champagne problems, yeah. right? You got yeah. so much business that that you have to say no to people, and we definitely went through times like that where. You know, we'd figure something out, whether it be you know figuring out Facebook marketing or figuring out our referral system, and then all of a sudden, boom! You see this massive influx, and you know you're growing twenty to twenty-five percent week over week for a period of time, and then the ops guys just put up their hands and say, "No more! You know, t- we're tapping out. We can't do it." Um, so you know that is a champagne problem, right? Uh, and you know over time we've gotten much more sophisticated in terms of how we do our forecasting, uh, you know how marketing works with business intelligence and operations and our culinary team and our sourcing teams to make sure that all of that works together. But it's definitely a, a challenge, and it's still a challenge today, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the logistics to me just seems <laughs> seems staggering. Yeah. Uh, so so how do you build like how do you build that out? Like what's what are the increments? I, you know, I know that it's all fluid, but it's it's the two of you guys, you and Josh, your your co-founder. Yeah. With a lot of uh, a lot of family support and love. Yeah. To you know a couple of investors and and angels, and then you know somehow through some good PR things start to build, and then when things really hit, like what do you how do you, do you just hire a bunch of engineers? Like, like what are the, how do you, which problems do you attack, how and when? And, yeah, and, good. And what's the next phase? Good question. Um, I mean, first hire we made was a guy named Keith Lydon. Uh, found him on Craigslist. We needed someone to, to help us pack boxes. Uh, he came, he, 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 you know, kind of went on a lark. He said, this, this sounds like a fun, weird thing. This is in you know, fall of 2012. He came to came to Greenpoint. I interviewed him, hired him on the spot. Now he's running our uh, a, a part of our food supply chain. Still, you know, three years later, uh, he had a restaurant and food sourcing background, and he he took a total flyer on us back when we didn't even have a refrigerator yet. 
Um, but he knew a lot about food and a lot about managing you know, hourly labor, and he was able to build up our, our hourly labor force and, and get us up and off the ground. The second hire we, we made was um, social media. So we, we hired a, a young gal, almost fresh out of college, named named Emily. She came up from Atlanta. She, she started the week of Hurricane Sandy. So you know, she moved her home. She started a new job. Totally threw her, you know, com- com- complete you know tsunami of, of life for her. Um, and she started you know really figuring out how to do uh, social, highly shareable content, referral marketing, content marketing. Third hire after Emily was Alana, who who is you know running our culinary team today, uh, and she actually started professionalizing our food, photographing the food. She was doing that out of her apartment for for almost a year. So, you know, she she'd come into the office smelling of, of bacon and swordfish, you know? <laughs> and all of her all her whole apartment just you know it was it was a, it was a good stink, but you know you had, <laughs> recipes upon recipes. Uh, so we didn't actually hire you know, we 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 had outsourced engineering for the first. Six months of the business plus Josh. Then we hired our first real engineer in early 2013, uh, a guy named Matt Pistrito, and uh, he was with us for almost three years as well and helped build out the the engineering team. But it was really lean and really scrappy for for you know a year, a hmm. year plus. And then um, June of 2013, we raised a million and a half dollars from from you know, professional venture capitalists. And at that point, we were able to hire. You know, a few more engineers, hire UX designer, hire some more people in operations, hire uh, someone who knew knew something about you know professional performance, user acquisition, marketing, uh, and really start building out the team. But you know, even now it feels very lean. Right. You know, we've got about a hundred people in headquarters, but it's a it's a it's a very wide ranging and complex business. You've got a hundred people in headquarters, over four hundred people throughout our our network, four fulfillment centers. You know, hundreds of thousands of, of meals going out a week. Customer service, finance, HR, user experience, tech, uh, mobile app, data. Uh, not nine new recipes per week <clears throat> being photographed and launched. Yeah, so there's all the food sourcing to support that, the operations and processes, a lot going on. So yeah, even even today, it's it feels very lean. Yeah, it's I've said it three times already. That's dizzying. That's crazy. Like you're you're giving me all those things, and I'm just like nodding. Like wow, that's a lot to a lot to keep your you know finger on the pulse of. Yeah. What? So you have you have four distribution centers. Are mm-hmm. they are they outsourced? Or are they they yours? We made the decision to to operate those. You know, we don't own them at long term leases. Okay. Uh, and we we. But it's your team in there doing the fulfillment. Our, our team, our employees, everyone's got equity. Everyone's got benefits. Uh, so one, we think it's the right thing to do in, in this you know 1099 contractor world we live in now. Um, that's not the kind of company we wanted to build. Uh, and two, we want to also retain control over as much of the of, of the core element of the business as possible. And at the end of the day, the the meat and potatoes is, is literally what customers are paying right. for. So we we needed to have control over that. Where are the? I'm just curious. Where are the fulfillment centers? One is in the Bay Area, okay. uh, in Oakland. One is in Chicago. One's in Miami, and one's in the Bronx here in New York. Uh, and from those four, we work with our logistics partners. We've got a couple couple dozen logistics partners at this point to cover the entire lower 48. Hmm. So we, we ship to all of the lower 48 states, and we we have customers in all the lower 48 states as well. And you and Josh, you know, you talked about the division of labor at the beginning. What's the what's the division of labor now? So it, it's an evolving process. You know, he's he's my uh, my my work husband or work wife. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, 
fostering that relationship, making sure it's it's healthy, uh, keeping the communication as 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 open and dynamic as possible. It's it's a lot like like you know being in a, in any other relationship, just in, investing the time to make it work. Uh, and over the years, as as the business has changed, we've had to change you know how we operate and, and what we do. So the the way it works now is he focuses on you know, producing the stuff, whether it be uh, code or operations or design, and I focus on, on commercializing it. So the marketing, PR, the customer service. So, so and, and you're, you're also running the, are you running the fundraising side of this? Uh, so we do it together. I, I was, we have a CFO now, professional chief financial officer. Uh, we also have a non-executive chairman who was, was in the food business for over 30 years and most recently IPO'd a, uh, a frozen vegetable business for over a billion dollars. So we've, we've surrounded ourselves with, with really <laughs> you know, competent people who actually know what they're doing. Um, and, you know... I, so the the fundraising process, we we divide responsibilities there as well. So you started as a bootstrapper, and this quote from the Wall Street Journal that I pulled is mm. is, is true to a bootstrapper's heart, even though you are fundraising. And, and you guys just just completed a round of, of what sixty sixty million dollars? Uh, we raised thirty five million. Thirty five million, but you have you raised overall about about fifty seven million in okay. total. I got to get my numbers straight here. <laughs> uh, here's I've got it written down right here. Thirty five. Okay. Um, so I was thinking of the big total, but. This is a quote. We had more money chasing us than we thought we needed until our next inflection point. We made a conscious decision after seeing some other New York-based e-commerce companies raise too much money early in their li- early in their life cycles to be more conservative. And you know, to me, I, I'm a bootstrapper. I talk about it all the time on the show. But this is like really bold and, and clear-headed. What did refusing additional funding in 2014 do for you? And did it strengthen your hand when you went when you went out the next time? Well, you know, I, I think raising raising too much money can really be dangerous to an early stage company. There, there are you know, literally dozens of examples out there of folks who go out, raise too much money, don't yet have product market fit, uh, don't yet know where they need to invest their dollars, uh, and just you know, start hitting the accelerator way too fast and end up killing the business. Um, you know, fab.com right. is, a, is you know, an unfortunate example. At, at one point at the peak, those guys raised over $200 million and they were spending over a million dollars a day on Facebook alone. Just blowing cash out the door. I never heard that. That's crazy. Yeah, not not knowing if they were going to get a return on that investment. And, you know, unfortunately, they, they just, you know, several months ago sold in a, in a fire sale for, for a, a fraction of, of that. So they, they destroyed an enormous amount of value um, just trying to grow too fast before they had things figured out. Uh, and when you have raised that much money, your investors put that kind of pressure on you. They want to see faster growth. They, they want, they, you know, there, there's, if you raise that much money, there, there's an obligation to grow into it very quickly. Right. And that, that creates perverse incentives for, for management and, and for the whole team. I want to. You've got a really fascinating personal background that I want to get to, um, but a few more questions I've plated. Uh, you know, we we talked about things keeping us up at night. Um, you know, does 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 pun intended and not intended one bad egg uh, keep you up at night? I mean, how 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 food safety has got to be a big concern. But what is that the main thing? What else keeps you up at night? Uh, food safety is is a huge concern for for this business, or it's, it's a huge thing we we spend a lot of time thinking about and investing in. You know, we do we do a mock recall 
once a quarter. We've got a food safety team. We've got a, a team of lawyers. All they do is food. Um, so, uh, un- unfortunately, in the food industry, it's it's more of a when, not an if. You have food food problems, even if they're they're perceived by the customer and not necessarily wide widespread. Um, so, the the best thing you can do is just protect yourself and, and minimize the the, the downside. And, and you know, more broadly, that's that's kind of the the role of the of the founders and the people running the business is to you know, plan for the plan for the best, shoot for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground and make sure you're you're, you're mitigating risk wherever possible. So, and, and food safety is just a, a, a manifestation of that. So it's one part of it. Um, you know, th- throughout the business, there there are all kinds of challenges. You know, like like we were talking about earlier, running a business is, is solving problems every day. If if there aren't problems to be solved, you probably don't have a business. Um, you know, for for us right now, it's 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 scaling challenges. You know, we 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 really have only been a real business for you know, two two ish years, and you know we've we've grown incredibly fast, grew over five hundred percent two two years in a row. Um, you know, went from two employees to over four hundred, and you know, just putting in place the processes, the systems. You know, the, the physical infrastructure. We've done over over twenty five real estate transactions as we moved headquarters, as we moved fulfillment centers. So, just a you know the growing pains and often you know a lot, a lot of you know, again champagne problems. Right? These are good problems to have, but just you know, making sure that the culture doesn't break and that we're continuing to deliver what we promise to to customers as, as we grow. You know, there's a lot involved in making that all happen. I think because of the way Facebook came out and just trounced its com- its competitors, and I think we sort of think about one player dominating mm. a space. Um, you know, we think of this like winner takes all phenomena. In your case, you got a lot of a few, you know, pretty well funded competitors. Is there, you know, can we all get along? Is there is there room? <laughs> Do you feel like you have to be the category killer, or can you know? There's so many different supermarkets and restaurants. And yeah, is there enough room for? A bunch of different companies to to, have, to carve their carve out their own niche within the, or yeah, not even I mean, niche because it's massive. Totally, I think I think that's a that's a great point, and it's it's a relevant point for anyone starting a business in, in a large consumer market, especially if it if it's food. I mean, in in food, if you combine all food technology companies today, probably still doing under a billion dollars in revenue, and you look at a market that's a trillion dollars big. So it's just a we're a teeny teeny drop in in the bucket compared to the the, the broader pre existing food industry, and again the reason why we started this business is because the the folks that 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 started great businesses 20, 30, 40 years ago are are incredibly inefficient. There's a there's a reason why you see grocery chains that have you know one percent EBITDA margins. Their gross margins are great. You know, they're they're generating profit on the unit, but then through waste and overhead, so much gets gets thrown away, and that margin gets whittled down. And that's not good for investors. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for customers. So there's just a better way to do food. And there are, you know, to your point, dozens of people trying to figure out how to do that. So for for us, it is not winner take all. There there should be. There really should be dozens of new businesses, new winners that emerge over the next few years and, and decades here as people continue, continue to shift their food spend online. So right now, less than 2% of all food is bought online in the United States. 
to, to us, it, it feels like an inevitability that that's going to continue to shift online. So as that happens, you'll see more, more, more competition, more players moving to, to fulfill that demand. We see competition as the, the, the pre-existing food, food industry. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's your fast casual, it's your grocery, it's your takeout. That, that's where we're getting our customers today. So we're talking about like the you know, 2% of the market now is, um, is online food purchases and such a long way to go. I mean, you, when you look into your crystal ball, do you see a, a, a super marketless world? Like what, what does the future of food look like? Yeah, I mean, for, that's something we, we think a lot about. Right? When, we, when we look out 10 years, the, the vision for this business is to make you know, personalized, waste-free food better or accessible for, for, for more people. And that can take many different shapes, whether it be vertical farming and, and drone delivery or you know, reimagining what grocery looks like. You know, grocery today that doesn't make much sense. There's actually this whole phenomenon of the, the unbundling of the grocery store. You get your diapers on diapers.com. You get your soap on soap.com. You get your granola bars on box.com. The, the grocery store is being picked apart. So, so businesses, grocery businesses that already weren't good to start with are now being picked apart. So you know, if you look out 10 years and if you look at what mobile and you know, mobile is going to change in a dramatic way. I mean, 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't even exist, right? So if you think what's going to happen 10 years from now, you know, in, implanted and other kinds of wearable technologies will tell you exactly what you need to eat, when you need to eat, and it'll get delivered to you by, by, by a drone. You know, like that's not that crazy to think about 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the way we think about buying food is going to completely change. And we're excited to be, to be you know, at the forefront of that innovation. I want to. I, I'm loving the conversation I played, but I, I, with some of the time we have left, I know you're on a tight schedule. I want to ask you about a few personal choices you made in your life. Um, one of them that was pretty fascinating to me was you. You graduated from Harvard Business School, and 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 then joined the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you mentioned it just briefly as, um, um, beforehand, but it's it's you know Harvard Business School is actually quite well known for attracting people from the military, but it seems like a pretty unorthodox to you know uh, career move coming out of Harvard Business School to join the military. Tell us about. How you made that choice and, and, and why? Yeah, so I, I went to Dartmouth College undergrad, and then I, I moved to, to Indonesia after school where I started a, a microfinance organization. You know, again, all, always I've been motivated by big challenges and, and a big mission you know, impact. Um, ultimately, starting the microfinance group, we, we couldn't – the guys I started it with didn't want to turn into a profitable model. They didn't want to be profit-driven. They wanted to keep it nonprofit. And I realized that in order to, to really scale and have massive impact, we would need to be profit-driven. And that's what drove me back to, to graduate school, to, to Harvard for, for business school. And when I was there at, at Harvard, the, the folks that I saw who I was most impressed by, who had the, the best leadership skills – and just kind of seemed to have their shit together had had come out of military backgrounds. And I'd been in New York for 9-11. I knew people who died. Family was close to folks who died. And that's when I initially started thinking about military service. And then coming out of grad school, it was this now or never proposition. I was 26 and uh, I, I wanted that those leadership skills I wanted to serve my country and I knew if I if I didn't do it then I, I never would and it would be something that I would always regret you know Jeff Bezos talks about this regret minimization framework mm. it sounds super nerdy but if you think about like when you're 80 
whenever you're looking at making a decision, you think about when you're 80. And when you're 80, if you look back to that decision and you say, well, I regret not doing this, you should probably do it. And that, that, that's what the case was for me. So I went, went active duty, became an infantry officer with the Marine Corps. Um, tough, challenging, incredibly uh, educational time. Um, and you know, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. And then you, you were in the reserves thereafter? Mm-hmm, yeah. Were, were you ever called up for reserve duty when you were at Plated? So I, when I went into the Marine Corps <laughs> in 2010, I was almost sure I, I would be deployed to Afghanistan. You know, I, I was actually slotted to, to go. Uh, and you know, when, when you go through all that training, you, you want to go see combat. You, know, you feel like you've, yeah, it, it's, it's just gets, it just gets ingrained into your soul. Uh, and, and also a bit of brainwashing helps too. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, the President Obama um, declared uh, the troop drawdown right around when I was coming out of my training. So the mission to Afghanistan was, was canceled. And you know, it's, it's probably in retrospect a, a good thing. During that time, I was able to, to start plated and, you know, you know, God willing, not not lose any limbs or or, or my sanity, um, but it's something that I, I think a lot about. Right? You know, you, you have that training. There are a lot of guys that have that have gone over and and given everything. So it's something that I I think about. I've got you know buddies who are injured or or, or died over there, um, but you know in, in 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 retrospect, the the way I've spent my time over the last few years has been I, I, I wouldn't trade it. Right. What um. Just go, and also, you know, going back, you, you mentioned your, your time doing microcredit in, 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 in Indonesia. There's another tongue twister for me. Uh, you grew the program from like 25 loans to over 5,000 loans, um, and I'm just, you know, like the average loan I think was it was $65. Or yeah. Like that. Yeah. Can you tell us about? Did you did you know people like did you know the the customers so to speak personally? Can you tell us about a couple of successes that you had there? Yeah. So uh, th- there's there's backstory to that one as well. You know, I was I was living in Java and I as an undergraduate I'd done research and wrote my thesis around microfinance. I was really interested in, in putting it into practice in, in the wild, so to speak. Um, and I met up with. I met a bunch of guys who were living in, in a city in Java called Solo, and they had been running a, a democracy rights group for, for a decade. And I told them about what I wanted to do, and it aligned with with, with their interest in, in you know, helping more people, and we were able to stand up this group. So I, I raised the initial seed funding for, for the microfinance group, it was called Compeep, uh, and we, we worked in the field together for the better part of a year and still still running today. Um, one one great client we had there was an earthquake actually a few months after we started uh, and this town was you know basically basically destroyed and this woman who was in her forties uh, her her leg had been horribly broken you know when, when we met her you, you could still see the uh, I'm making these hand motions but you can't Boy. really see like the the bone had broken the skin it was pretty gnarly um, and she had no insurance you know v- very poor husband was a farmer uh, you know she was just hobbling around on a cane with this terribly broken leg and they, they couldn't afford to go to the hospital so she got a loan from from Compeep and was able to pay to, to go to the hospital get her leg fixed and they, they paid down the loan over time and she was able to you know 
get back to being a, a, a normal person. So mm. you know, pr- pretty like the, the whole concept of microfinance has been pilloried a lot in the recent in recent years, especially what, what's happened in, in India with with the industry. But at at heart, it's a it's it's pretty pretty cool to see in in practice what it can do. It's it's not a panacea to, to global poverty, but it, it definitely is a, a, a you know pretty pretty inspiring industry. Hmm. Wow, that's that, yeah, that, that, that's intense. Um, I you know I know you're on a tight schedule. We got to let you go. Um, I want to you know thank you so much for for being here. It was and, fun, man. And, Thanks. Uh, we're gonna bring you back when uh, when the drones start uh, yes. dropping stuff in my backyard. The drones. When I have a backyard, <laughs> drones stop it. Uh, drop in. But thanks so much for being here, Nick. Thanks, great. Jeremy. Yeah, for sure. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.